Hey everybody, welcome to the Real DMC Podcast. DMC stands for Dave, Marcus, and Colin, although at the moment it's more of the Real D Podcast because I'm the only one here. It's a bit of a solo journey for the moment. Uh, The good news is that means I can say whatever I feel like. Uh, Today we have a very special episode of the Real DMC Podcast. If you grew up in the 80s like I did, when you hear the phrase, very special episode, you're probably thinking about Alex Keaton and his friend dying in that car crash, or perhaps Kirk Cameron delivering you a heartfelt PSA on the dangers of cocaine. You know, a lot of people tell you that drugs are cool. Well, they're wrong. Everybody's not doing drugs, and you don't have to try them to be cool. This is how I feel. And if you think that makes me uncool, then you're wrong. Hot chicks wanting to give you cocaine, Mike Seaver, and you wimp out? Bad move, dude. Today is actually a special episode because it marks the one-year anniversary of the first Real DMC podcast. And over the course of the last year, we've done 70 of them total. It's been tons of fun. We've been mostly trying to figure out our format. So we started with our year in reviews, and then we all realized that that, that was way too much effort, so we scrapped that. Um, we've learned a lot about editing along the way, and we're still learning more as we go. Uh, spoiler alert, it takes a very long time. Uh, and it's also just given us an opportunity to look at film in an entirely different way. So it's been fun to go back and revisit movies that I haven't watched in 20 or 30 years uh, and also be looking at them with a critical eye. So it's just made the experience of watching a movie more fun and more interesting. Uh, But for me personally, it's actually just been mostly about hanging out with friends. So uh, Colin and Marcus and I have been friends for anywhere in the 30 to 35 year range, depending on when you count when we first met. Uh, We're definitely operating with a bit of a hive mind at this point. Um, and also along the way, we've also had uh, some you know, great alternate episodes. So we have the Lockdown Cinema series that I did with my daughter, Mia, where I got a chance to introduce her to a bunch of movies that I like and capture her reaction. For example, I showed her Spinal Tap. Uh, that did not land. So if you want to see how a uh, current 17-year-old uh, girl uh, takes, uh, takes in Spinal Tap for the first time, please check out that episode. Uh, we've also done some alternate episodes with some friends. So our, our contributor, Jamie... Uh, has uh, he's been on board for Roadhouse and Navy Seals, so check out a couple of those episodes. So it's just been fun to hang out and screw around and really you know pass a lot of time during the quarantine. So for us and for me personally, it's just been a godsend. So so happy we're doing this, just having fun. Uh, we hope you're enjoying these episodes. So uh, we definitely are seeing an ongoing increase of people who are listening to our podcast, which is tons of fun. We have no idea who you are. So uh, be super curious if you want to hit us up on Twitter and just send us a message. Let us know what works, what doesn't work, uh, or maybe send us a suggestion for a movie. Uh, we're, we're taking all feedback at this point. As uh, If you listen to our recent podcast, Colin's basically begging for feedback. So please, somebody give him some feedback. Now, the episode you're about to hear is an interesting one, and it is a very special one because it's the very first podcast we ever tried doing. And we basically put this thing on the shelf and said uh, we probably should never release it. We didn't really know what the hell we were doing, so this was our first run-through. We certainly hadn't standardized or even really figured out the format. And uh, even the audio itself, because we did basic Zoom audio recording, uh, yeah, the quality is a bit sketchy. And probably the other funny thing is, you know, we, we said, okay, hey, we're going we're gonna to dissect a movie and talk about a movie and go deep on a movie. What movie should we do? <laughs> the movie that we chose was William Friedkin's 1980s Cruising, which if anybody is familiar with the history of that film, uh, it's definitely, it's a high degree of difficulty for a starting point for going in and doing a podcast. 
uh, listened to it earlier today. I think we did okay, which is why we decided to go ahead and release it. It's also just a weird, interesting time capsule. And also, if you want to hear like what happens when, uh, you know, what's what's the beta version of podcasting or the very first one when a bunch of guys get together and just take a shot at it for the first time, here's what you get. Hope you enjoy our first ever attempt at a podcast. And uh, for now, I will pass you off and enjoy our run through 1980s William Friedkin's Cruising. All right. So should I just tee it up? Do it. Okay. Game on. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of the Real DMC podcast. Real as in movie real, DMC as in deep, meaningful conversation, which you're very much <laughs> unlikely to find here. <laughs> it actually stands for uh, Dave, Marcus, and Colin. So uh, three long-term friends who like to bullshit about movies. So hey, Marcus and Colin, how you guys doing today? Hello. I'm good, Dave. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm, uh, you know... Checking in from the uh, North Bay COVID-19 bunker up in Petaluma, California. So, doing okay? All right. I'm here in, in, in Studio 6D in Oakland. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm over here in San Carlos, California. All right. We got the Bay Area surrounded. So, Dave, what are we doing? What are, what are we, we doing? doing today? Colin, thank you for asking. So, uh, so, what we're doing as part of this podcast on an ongoing basis uh, we're looking at movies uh, starting with 1980. We're going year by year. We're identifying our five favorite films. And then as part of that, we're also identifying any movies that uh, we collectively missed. And what we're calling those, uh, we're identifying those as a homework assignment. So then three of us will watch one of those movies and uh, we'll come back and talk about it. And So it's we, sort of like check, please, but for movies. Yeah, it's kind of like that, I guess, um, but not really at all. Uh, what we decided to do was actually watch... 1980s William Friedkin directed Cruising with starring Al Pacino, which uh, really was a fascinating choice and just really ultimately a fascinating movie. Chris, do you have any thoughts as to why we started with Cruising of all films? There, it, you can blame uh, one of our favorite podcasts, Rewatchables, and uh, Bill Simmons and Chris Ryan. It's one of their personal favorites. They talk about it often. Piqued my curiosity. I, I'm personally wondering if either one of them would, would describe it as a personal favorite. Uh, I'd like to find the person who finds this film uh, or has this film on their personal favorites list. Start us off here. So uh, the Internet Movie Database, the quick summary is a police detective goes undercover in the underground S&M gay subculture of New York City to catch a serial killer who is preying on gay men. Seems like a good setup. It does. It's interesting. Apparently it was uh, based on a book by a New York Times feature writer, Gerald Walker, and which was in turn based on uh, a series of murders that were actually taking place in the 1970s uh, in the gay community. And to this day, apparently, most of those murders remain unsolved. So, uh, and apparently that book became a hot property. It was, uh, there were several different production companies that were trying to battle for the rights. Uh, and then once it became an actual film, there, was, uh, there were several actors who were very interested in playing the part. So. For whatever reason, this particular subject matter at the time uh, seemed to be very compelling for a combination of uh, both directors and actors. Yeah, cruising stars Al Pacino as a detective, and then also Paul Sorvino and Karen Allen. So let's talk a little bit about the film's reputation. Uh, Colin, what did you know about this movie before we decided to watch it? I knew absolutely nothing about this movie. I I recall hearing about this movie, the literally the title of the movie um, back in, you know, 1980. 
Um, being nine years old at the time, I think I was probably steered away from it, <laughs> which is why I was, I think, very um, sort of fascinated by this because um, uh, Bill Simmons and Chris Ryan kept bringing it up uh, on podcasts and threatening to do it as as their 200th, 200th uh, rewatchables episode. So, um, yeah, um, I was uh, quite surprised. Marcus, how about you? Any familiarity with this film before we decided to take a look? No, no, no. I, uh, I do not remember it from a youth nor any time since. It wasn't until... Uh... So, yeah. You, you sound like you were a bit floored by the movie. <laughs> um, the first 15 minutes are very not... Ex- uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Very off-putting. Were, were, you, were you feeling a little uncomfortable? wasn't uncomfortable it's just like what the heck am i watching i was okay. quite surprised yeah so i would say uh i knew about i knew of this movie uh mostly because of i knew that there was controversy when they were filming it uh, because the gay community was uh, very opposed to what they thought was going to be a negative um, presentation of their lifestyle uh and but for me the other thing that i was confused about was somehow i i thought aids somehow played uh, was part of the this movie or the landscape of the film and so I, I had a very vague association between aids and this film and uh there actually is no reference to aids in this movie so i think it was a mixture looking back and not really understanding what was happening in the early 80s uh and knowing that this was a you know a gay film made around the same time so i i think you could probably say that this was the peak of the pre aids uh uh gay community sort of gay fetish community films uh, because like right after this is like you know like in 1981 82 the aids crisis really starts to hit and um, a lot of this type of behavior you know like gets sort of like you know self uh, policed and starts you know going down because for obvious reasons but I, I you just don't see this like this type of thing on film anymore, like past 1981, right? I think there's a little bit of the kind of the freewheeling 70s sex culture here too. I think yeah. this is definitely the, the tail end of that. Uh, so you have a lot of that energy uh, coming together on the screen and certainly um, they don't pull any punches in that regard, which we can talk about as we go through it. Uh, before getting to the, the progression of the film itself, how about just your relationship to the kind of the pedigree of the film? So actors the director that sort of thing how about you marcus yeah looking into it i actually had it's not nearly what i expected um for the film it's starring al pacino and directed by william friedkin who previously did french connection and the exorcist and and later to live and die in la so he has a good uh set of movies i've seen before and enjoyed and al pacino obviously done godfather and dog day afternoon who's critically acclaimed at that time. He's probably, you know, top of his game. So yeah, I had pretty high hopes and this was not the movie I expected. Um, well, so I, I, I would say that, you know, knowing that it starred Al Pacino and it was directed by William Friedkin, uh, those were two definite points of interest for me. Uh, I definitely would consider myself a fan of William Friedkin as a director for sure. Uh, I always think of him in particular, I mean, obviously the French Connection, and the uh, that the whole movie, which I really enjoy, uh, but particularly the end chase scene with Popeye Doyle racing the train, I just think it's uh, a pretty 
you know, amazing piece of filmmaking. So I was definitely interested. I assumed that the film would probably be a little bit more high energy than it was, I guess. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm definitely a Pacino fan. So, you know, Godfather films, Son of a Woman, Donnie Brasco, um, and of course, Heat. What do you got? So, uh, you know, was uh, was looking forward to it. And um, again, the movie definitely wasn't what I was expecting. I got a hot take on, on William Friedkin. What's your I, hot take? My hot take is that he's he's cut, he was cutting edge at the time that he made those, those three big movies. That, um, including this one, so we'll just say four. Um, but that, and he's really good with the action sequence, the the car chases in particular. But other than that, uh, I think he's a bit overrated. I was surprised because uh, French Connection and To Live and Die in L.A. both have great kind of action movie starring a cop. It's a, you know, kind of crime dramas. And this had none of that same sort of kind of fun uh, action there's a whole different other kind of... Well, action. I even think those movies are a bit overrated. I mean, I just watched The Live and Die in L.A. again. And my my takeaway was great car chase. Um, William Peterson's like really going for it. Like just overacting all over the place. But it's not really... It wasn't, it wasn't as great as I remembered it being. And yeah. The French Connection I've seen once. And, you know, everyone knows about, you know car chases but i never really liked it i didn't think it was all that great yeah one thing that i would say about him as a director is i think the uh the work that he does in terms of framing up a city landscape and you know kind of the grittiness the griminess like you feel you definitely feel new york and the whole new york uh what's what i'm looking for it's dirty it, you you can feel the grime on you in cruising i mean this this is like the worst of New York, like during the seventies, like, and you know, Freakin does a good job of, of relaying that here. Maybe it's just because of the neighborhoods, you know, that they're focusing on, but ooh, I don't want to go there. Yeah. The, the way he uh, shoots uh, cruising also, it's very, very dark. It's, it looks like it's shot on like old expired 35 millimeter film and just very like grainy dark and, uh, yeah, it gives that very kind of dirty, like the old Times Square vibe of like, this is not a place I want to go be at after dark. I was reading the cinematographer initially wanted to shoot it all in uh, black and white, which I'm not sure if it would have worked or not. Um, would have made it, I think, try to make it too high art or something if they did it as a high key black and white shot. But what would have seemed a bit maple therapy to me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, everything that you see in the film, according to Friedkin, at least, was a real was something that really occurred. So, and uh, and there is a uh, apparently there are forty minutes of additional footage that were shot by Friedkin that is just just contains scenes from inside the S and M clubs uh, that he then uh, submitted to the MPAA and they asked him to remove it because initially it received an X rating and uh, those forty minutes were apparently destroyed. So because people have asked about seeing them at some point. They're, they're definitely a, a curiosity. So uh, what I would say is the movie starts off and starts off with a boat, tugboat going through uh, harbor in New York. As, as the boat's cruising through the harbor, uh, the guy that's on there looks down and realizes he sees something floating in the water and it ends up being a body part. And it's an arm. Uh, so uh, the, the next scene that we come to, uh, the police officer is in the morgue with the uh, 
coroner and the coroner is looking at the arm and saying, you know, if we take this arm and get a fingerprint off of it, perhaps we could prosecute the crime. And uh, this is where I, one, one thing that I think I will say throughout this movie is the police have a very interesting uh, approach to law enforcement in this film. It's all over the place. It's certainly not very complimentary to, to the police officers. And they come across as very lazy because I actually wrote down what the guy says because the, the coroner is recommending that they open a homicide investigation. And although they have an arm sitting on the table, the exact quote that the police officer says is, you know, I can't prosecute a homicide without a cause of death. I'd have to go out and find the rest of the body. So apparently if you just find an arm and you're in the New York police department, that's not enough to pursue a criminal investigation. Hey, somebody could have just lost an arm, you know, it happens. Arms fall off all the time. Yeah. Really? <laughs> By the way, I, I, I got to give props to the, uh, the makeup department. Cause that was probably one of the, the, grossest looking decayed arms I've ever seen in a movie. It was really bad. It's all green and mottled. And, oh, really bad. Yeah. And apparently that was with the, the murders that were occurring in the seventies. That's one thing they were finding were body pieces that were washing up uh, or they were in the river. So didn't the scene end with him shoving the arm in the, in a locker with all the other parts and he shut the door on it. Yeah, exactly. They were just a bunch of random body parts, and uh, you know, but but that's not enough to get the police curious to go out and try to solve a crime. Although maybe I guess it is eventually. Uh, well, I, I suppose if they found a few more body parts, they might be able to put them all together and have one body. <laughs> it's a very odd uh, odd approach to police work. All right, so then uh, cut to our first murder sequence, uh, where we we are in an S and M club, and uh, somebody. Uh, so there's the, the killer who uh, were, you never really get a good look at his face because he has an S&M hat on and a pair of mirrored sunglasses. Uh, but he picks up somebody and takes him back to a hotel room. You gloss over being in the S&M club. The setup shot in the tracking, it's almost like Goodfellas-esque of panning through the whole club in a wide, wide assortment of, of men dressed in and undressed in various sorts of leather, chaps, Nothing. What's what sort of leather and chaps? Can you expand on that a little bit? <laughs> I don't have uh, a wide vocabulary on the knowledge of the different types, so you can let me know. Don't forget to mention the jock straps. Yeah, and nothing else. I also want to say that does no one have air conditioning? I mean, <laughs> everyone was like just like beads of perspiration, like everywhere. Yeah, the it was actually I thought it was well shot like the setup shots of it like really gives you the feel of being there it's like you're in close you're walking through the club with them it was a brought you, back a lot of memories for you <laughs> <laughs> it was shot like you don't want to be there like it was as if you were there and you're like I do not want to be here I will say that the um, it really shows just how much time Friedkin spent in the gay clubs because uh, I think he he captured them uh, very well. I, those are some of the most memorable scenes, um, uh, just, you know, cinematically. Um, and, you know, I think one thing to note, it, he used a lot of, um, these, these are not just extras, but, um, you know, like club, uh, the club denizens, he used them as, as like real extras in the movie. So a lot of the people that you see there, you know, actually frequent those types of clubs. Yeah, it seemed to me like it was going like on first viewing and kind of viewing it from uh, 
a now era, it seemed like it was like way over the top. Like this could not have ever been real. Um, I think they they held back a bit. <laughs> <laughs> that's the scary part too. You know, it was interesting because while I was watching it, I was kind of wondering if, and, and I thought about the the protests, knowing about the protests, and I was actually wondering if maybe it had been amped up too much, like the way that Friedkin was portraying uh, the club members with S and M gear and the you know the Judas Priest looking hat and all that kind of stuff. Um, I thought maybe it was too over the top, but apparently no, not the case. Apparently that was. Have you never been to Folsom Street Fair? Okay, so uh, <laughs> so, so leaving the club. Uh, there is, you know, so one guy picks up another one, takes him back to the hotel room for sex. And uh, at that point, that's where we get our first murder. And apparently, uh, and what I noticed when I was watching the scene of the murder, there's a, a real quick flash of something very reminiscent of the what Brad Pitt's character does in Fight Club, where he puts a piece of pornography, uh, splices of one, you know, one or two frames of pornography into children's films. Um, in this case, what William Friedkin did is he actually spliced in uh, a couple of frames of a gay sex film and what he was trying to do was draw a connection between uh, the knife used for murder and uh, anal sex which i think is an interesting uh, an interesting approach i'll just i'll leave it at that <laughs> yeah you 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 didn't notice the uh, all the wrestling mags on the floor uh, were, were there lots of wrestling mags on the floor? <laughs> yeah, there were. Well, you, you know, the, what I would say about that is when you when the guy... The, the things that stick out in your mind as you're watching a, a scene like this. Well, All of the wrestling magazines. <laughs> so, yeah, what I would say is the other thing is when, when they get back to the hotel room, the guy who's occupying the hotel room has a, a good-sized trunk with him, and it's just filled with S&M bondage gear. And so my thought was, where's the rest of his stuff? He's, stay, he's staying in a hotel room and, you know, does he have a regular suitcase? No, he just travels with a single, you know, case of S. He's bonds. probably paying by the night. I think this is the uh, St. James Hotel, which uh, I, I looked at it um, the other day on Street View. And wow, has that neighborhood changed? Really nice, really nice looking hotel now. Gentrification? Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, <laughs> big time. <laughs> So anyway, so we get our we get the first murder scene, um, and it's you know I would say it's brutal enough. It seems like the guy stabs him I don't know what eight to ten times or something like that, uh, and then we cut to the police investigation of that murder. And so apparently this is one of many murders that has been taking place in the gay community. And so uh, the police, led by Paul Sorvino, uh, again just a very interesting approach to law enforcement. They decide that they need to send somebody in undercover into the S&M scene and uh, their criteria for figuring out who would be the best person to go undercover is based on a description of the killers or, or the people who have been murdered. And so uh, Paul Sorvino reaches out to Al Pacino and brings him into his office in what is one of the most unique interviews ever in terms of, hey, uh, would you like to be a detective? Let me ask you something. Have you ever had your cock sucked by a man? A man? <laughs> no. Uh, ever no, been forked? Or had a man smoke your pole? <laughs> you got to be kidding. <laughs> um, awkward interview. <laughs> yeah, you know, and let me just I'll note, a, note a couple other things. And this is, so one thing that I found very interesting about this movie overall is it seems like there are several shots that are in there that 
I'm not quite sure what purpose they serve. And so before Al Pacino uh, walks into Paul Sorvino's office, there's just a split second where you see Paul Sorvino make a move on an automated chessboard. And he, it's, you know, four to five seconds of him sitting there making a move on chess and they never reference it again. So I don't really understand what, what they're trying to, what, what they're trying to communicate there. I think what they were trying to communicate was that Paul Sorvino was uh, way ahead of his time that he was an early adopter of electronic games and, um, and he was a really smart guy. Or it was just completely random. Yeah, it's just, and there's several other scenes that I'll talk about where I'm just kind of like, well, okay, why is that there? Well, well, what I want to know, what stuck out in my mind was, you know, yeah, so he pulls in Al Pacino, who's basically this young cop, right? But he's got, like, no undercover experience. Right. And you're, you're going to pull him in on this, you know, pretty major case, right? But the other thing that really stuck out was, was he a security guard? And they go, what kind of uniform was he wearing? It was like this old, like this tan trousers and tan shirt. Like it did not look like a cop's uniform. It, was he like in the academy or something? And they just pulled him out of the academy to 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 uh, to go undercover. Yes, yeah, so I, I really don't understand like where he fit within the uh, the police hierarchy at the time. And it seemed a little seemed a little risky to to pull this guy in and, and just put him out on the street. Also, I don't know his um his motivation for taking the job. The uh... I think I know what his motivation was. <laughs> well, yeah, we wouldn't we, we get to that. Because um, <laughs> I, you know, what I would say is this movie feels uh, like it is seventy percent finished. Is what I would say. It, it seems like there are some pretty big uh, things that they gloss over, which we can get to in, in terms of the, the Al Pacino character and the directions that he wants to go. Because uh, I think that there's um, a lot of uh, ambiguity, which is there purposefully, but also you're not quite sure what his character ends up doing as he goes through this whole journey. Marcus, you want to add anything? <laughs> shakes his head all right okay so then really, uh, really understanding the, the way podcasts work <laughs> okay uh so then uh we, okay so then uh what i would say is so al pacino's uh, character and we should probably maybe call him by his character name which steve uh, burns I was, gonna say is, I was gonna say is ken burns but no that that's the documentary filmmaker so his name is in fact steve burns which is an obvious alias. Yeah, probably. What was it? Um, Bob Johnson wasn't available or was on a different assignment. So they went with Steve Burns. No yeah, more. Al Pacino does not look like a Steve Burns. You don't think he looks like a Steve Burns? You don't think he's carrying no, I don't, I don't think Burns? So. <laughs> okay. Neither Steve nor Burns. Okay, so, uh, so Al Pacino decides to take the assignment. He goes home to talk it over with his girlfriend, uh, played by Karen Allen. And I don't know about anybody else, but when I see Karen Allen, I'm immediately quite often pulled out of a of whatever movie I'm watching on because I think, oh, there's Marion Ravenwood from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, that's just an imprint, I guess, that uh, I have with Karen Allen. Love Karen Allen. Yeah, she's great. Uh, so he goes home and talks to her, lets her know he's going to take this assignment. He's going to be gone for a while. Uh, and then decides to move into a uh, motel that I think is, or, or a, apartment i think that's rented by the week or the month or something 
And when he goes to the hotel room to, uh, to move in, he finds a huge stack of uh, gay magazines, I think lots of wrestling magazines. And he, they somewhat make a show of him taking the magazines out of the apartment and walking down the stairs to where there's a garbage can. And this is another one of those things that's a really weird shot for me. He has a stack of magazines. He puts it down and then he decides to take magazines and pick them up uh, two or three at a time and put them in the garbage can without looking at them. So why not take a stack of magazines and drop them in the garbage can? I don't really understand that. So that's another one of those, like, what are they doing here? But he's, I, he's very deliberate. He's a, he's a very deliberate detective. Well, because I think they needed the, yeah. uh, the next door neighbor to show up. And uh, if he did them all at once, it would have been too quick. But how did he know he was looking for the next door neighbor? But he doesn't. I'm just saying that's why they shot it that way. Yeah. But yeah, it's weird. So, and speaking of which, so there is... Also, William Friedkin, a little overrated. <laughs> that's your Friedkin hot take? Yeah. Al, Al, just take the magazines and put them in a few at a time. Let's, let's stretch this out. We've got to pad it a little bit. We only have 40 additional, we have to cut 40 minutes. So let's uh, stretch it out with uh, making sure that we can get two to three minutes out of you putting magazines in a garbage can. So you'd say he's a bad director with a few good scenes? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so anyways, uh, then Steve Burns, uh, may, he befriends an, an upstairs neighbor who comes down and they have a brief conversation around what's going on. Uh, the, the neighbor informs him that the person who was living in that apartment I forget. Did he leave or was he the murdered guy? I forget. No, he left. He moved out. I, I, believe. I don't. It was never really clear. Yeah. Also, yeah. it was never clear why, if he was posing as, you know, a gay man, like why is he throwing out all these magazines? I don't. It just a lot of this movie just didn't make sense. You know, what? I think we should we should spend the next thirty minutes talking about the magazines. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, it made a real impression on all of us. Well, the. Uh... <laughs> The lady downstairs likes to resell them too. They even talk. That about was the other thing. It's like, <laughs> so she's got this cottage industry of like you know magazine sales for like <laughs> young men who live in her in her building. Like it just okay. Never mind. We'll get off the magazines. <laughs> Stack them up by the garbage can. So uh, Steve Burns wants to uh, begin to get some information on the world he's going to be navigating. And so luckily there is a shop available to him that has uh, hankies and, uh, or handkerchiefs of different colors. And the person manning the counter in that is Powers Booth. So it's pretty cool to see Powers Booth for sure, a young Powers Booth. And uh, Powers Booth gives him an education, which is uh, if you want to receive or give certain services in the S&M community, you indicate that by having a certain color handkerchief in one of your two back pockets to either indicate that you wish to give or receive. Uh, and Powers Booth gives a very detailed uh, description of what the different handkerchiefs mean. What are they for? A light blue hank in your left back pocket means you want a blowjob. Right pocket means you give one. The green one left side says you're a hustler, right side you're a buyer. The yellow one left side means you give golden shower, right side you receive. The red one oh, means you say anything you want. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go home and think about it. I'm sure you'll make the right choice. I have a problem with the... Uh, it, it, it's it's conflicted. They, they like on the, uh, the blue hinky means you want to... And the left pocket means you want a blowjob, and the right means you're going to give. 
and then they switch it when it, for the uh, yellow hanky. They're switched. It's very confusing. Poor writing. Poor writing in that part. I think they do that. I think they do that to make sure that you you read up on the rules uh, <laughs> ahead of time. It's You're a, not just making assumptions. It's a green M&M. You know, they, we only want serious people there. I mean, he got he got called out for it. He was wearing a yellow hanky in the club, and a guy walks up to him and says, you into water sports? And he says, no. And he gets all pissed off at him. He's like, remove the damn hanky. And he's like, did you, didn't, you, did you not read the rules? <laughs> There's a Wikipedia page about it. Come on, man. And in truth, there actually is a Wikipedia page, which... Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm happy to have that in my internet search history for sure. Uh, I, I, unfortunately, this was in 1980, and so Wikipedia didn't exist. So right. I'll cut him some slack. Okay, but the uh, the colors and the, the what they indicate apparently was accurate. And this set sheds a whole new light on um, on the boss and and born in the USA and that album cover. What does red mean? Yeah, because what what does that indicate? <laughs> so uh, anyway, so. So here's what I'd say about this. So it's really undetermined uh, what Steve Burns' level of interest is in this culture. And uh, it, as the movie progresses, you become less and less clear as to how far he's taken things with his own investigation. You know, is he an active participant? Is he, uh, you know, is he having sex? Uh, it's not, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's left very ambiguous. A couple of times he's approached and he pulls back. Uh, by the end of the movie, uh, it seems to me that uh, his sexuality is ambiguous at best, uh, but they don't really ever take much of this on, much of this head on, with the exception at the very end of the film where he puts himself out there. Uh, I think calling, we'll, we'll jump to that. I think calling what he did an investigation is giving him a lot of credit. It just seemed like he aimed wandersly around and like kind of hoped. Would you say he was happen. just kind of cruising? Yeah, exactly. He I, really I think he was. Good. Yeah, it's like the. Uh, he he uses his primary source bartenders, which you know bartenders can give you a lot of good information. But it's basically, like, well, what? Why don't you just interview the bartenders? You know, I mean, <laughs> do you have to go undercover to do that? Yeah, yeah. And it just seemed like he was odd. overwhelmed by the whole culture of it. Like each each moment, he'd be like, oh, because even for the hanky store, he's like, whoa, whoa, this is like way too much, and walks out and like. I know. <laughs> it's like uncomfortable. Yeah, he's um, a little overwhelmed with the handkerchief code. But are are we really surprised? I mean, this guy is actually just a security guard. So, yeah, according to his well, awesome outfit. So maybe he played it right, but it it just seemed like a weird, like where they're going with the whole thing. Because then he had to keep checking in with Sorvino on uh, how the investigation's going. He's like, hey, I got I got the handkerchief code down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't just like slap him at that point. <laughs> I met, what are you doing, man? I met my neighbor and I figured out what color these handkerchiefs mean. <laughs> He's like, how does this relate to the case at all? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I found some uh, some naked wrestling mags and I was going to throw them out. And then I decided not to. <laughs> that was a little more De Niro than Pacino, but... <laughs> <laughs> I. I have a cold. So uh, that was a disappointing thing. He never goes full Pacino in this one either. It was very, uh, very low key. He goes full Pacino exactly oh, with, once yeah. actually when he when he, at, towards the end. But we we'll talk. We don't want to jump there yet. Yeah, this is no. This is definitely the old Pacino, like that quiet high voice of his. This is the Serpico Pacino. 
as opposed to uh, the Heat Pacino. So uh, after he does some initial investigation, he gets a little, gets some cold feet, uh, decides to check in with uh, Paul Sorvino again, who we should probably call him, call him by his character name, but it doesn't really matter. And uh, his name is Captain you know, Edelson. Captain Edelson. Oh, yeah. Or Edelstein or Edel, Edelstein, and he keeps yeah. calling him Edelson. Uh, young Paul Sorvino, um, I don't think he ever looked young in his life. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> like, yeah, he always looked that way. I'll, I will say, though, he's a much better cop on Law and Order than he is in this movie. Yeah, because he actually, uh, so so uh, Steve Burns goes to see him, explains that he's having some doubts about the whole situation, and goes to ask a clarifying question, and uh, Captain Edelson snaps at him, I asked the questions. <laughs> so, and at some point towards the end, uh, you know, Paul, or, uh, Steve Burns expresses all the admiration and he received from support from Captain Edelson. And I'm just wondering, when did that happen? Because it certainly didn't happen on the screen during the movie. <laughs> I can't say that Captain Edelson was terribly supportive of, uh, he basically just, you know, threw him out into the SNM world and said, yeah, go, go find a killer. And that's about all the support he was given. So after that scene, uh, we get our next murder, which is uh, a hookup between two men in the park and uh, somebody is, Pulled out into the, I, I, I think, I think the brambles. Is that what it's called? I don't know. Is, is Central. I think Park. they just call it the the woods. The woods. Yeah. So they go so they go to the woods and in randomly there's another sequence where just for a minute you see the, the kind of the predator heat vision or the you know the wolfen vision if you will. Remember that? <laughs> there's like one one scene where that shows up and I'm not it's like are we supposed to be looking from the perspective of the killer? Why are sudden are we seeing this? And then it happens once and then it goes away. Never explained. So just weird. Uh, and then, yeah, somebody else. So somebody else is murdered. Uh, and then uh, Al Pacino, Steve Burns is, you know, continues. He goes home and meets with Karen Allen. He's uh, starting, I think, to struggle with his own sexuality and uh, is, you know, takes out a little aggression on Karen Allen. And uh, then the next scene from there it cuts to a bus and someone's riding on the bus and they have a newspaper. And this really caught my eye because on huge typeface across the front of the newspaper, the uh, the article that's displayed there says, "Homo killer on the prowl." <laughs> oh, so, I'll note that that's not the most politically correct uh, uh, title or, or uh, typeface to appear in a newspaper for sure. So that just killed yeah. the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just trying to get over. Homo killer on the prowl. Homo killer on the prowl. I thought that was yeah. a that was, that was that was a choice, an interesting choice. The killer in the second one in the, in the park um, was quite obviously one of the other, not the same guy as uh, as in the bar as the first murder, and was in fact um, somebody he played another character, I think. Yeah, and actually, so I I read about that because I actually found this movie to be quite confusing. Uh, yeah, oh, it was very confusing. It, yeah. it, they don't, uh, and apparently, the what Friedkin was going for was not to have a single killer, right? Uh, he was actually, which I didn't realize. I sort of assumed that we were looking for one guy, the same guy. But uh, reading some interviews after the movie, uh, you know, Friedkin wanted to keep it open and wanted to try and uh, indicate that there was more than one killer out there running around, which I, I thought was interesting. Although, you know, that's not necessarily communicated that effectively in the movie because you're looking at the second killer and you're thinking, is this the same guy? Because, or is it supposed to be the same guy? Cause it's not the same guy. So 
Okay, so uh, what we have here is we have a confused Steve Burns who is uh, still trying to show his dominant heterosexual side while he you know, more and more is getting more and more into the cruising lifestyle. Because what you see over the course of the movie is he begins to transform his look a little bit. Uh, he, he's dressing more like the patrons of the clubs. He's definitely leaning into his quote unquote undercover assignment. Let's just say, I mean, like I said, I, I think the best part about the movie are the club scenes because they're, they're, they're pretty amazing just with, you know, you've never seen anything like this before. Right. I mean, unless you were, you know, around then in, in the seventies and, um, and you were into that scene. Um, wow. just <laughs> is like an eye opener. Yeah. And then somehow um, I forget how does, uh, how does Steve Burns end up getting locked in on one particular suspect uh, that he, because of the bartender. The, the bartender just kind of says that, that guy over there might be the... Yeah. Um, here, this is how you can be a cop in New York City in, in you know, like 1980. So, to go to, to the bartender and just say, so, any bad dudes come around here? <laughs> oh, yeah. See that guy over there? Yeah, he's a pretty bad dude. Okay. All right. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. And then so so what Steve Burns does is he decides to uh, lure this guy back to a hotel room with the idea of making himself a potential target or guinea pig for uh, the, you know, and with the idea then that he's going to have a, a bunch of cops run in and bust down the door before he gets killed and potentially arrest this guy. And so he goes to a hotel. He, I think, sets himself up in restraints. And then... Uh, I don't think he set himself up in the restraints. Okay, that's that's a good clarification. Thank you. <laughs> But no, I think what happened was that, you know, they had the radio that, you know, and then what happens, the radio goes out and now all the cops who are ready to bust in are going, oh my God, is he being killed? Like, right. Yes. And so then they got to, then they got to rush in. The, the one thing I would say is they don't do anything prior to that scene to set up the fact that Steve Burns has reached out to a group of his fellow police officers to say, I'm ready to go with the sting operation. Right, so all of a no, sudden he picks up this guy. There was no setup for it at all. There was no idea that it was going to be them coming in or anything. Yeah, when I was, I, when I think it was sort of assumed because they were out there listening in on the radio. I I did not expect that many cops to come rushing in. Though. Well, I thought it was like the for the strange because like he was saying, I've got his quote. He's like, oh, like he was tied up. And he's like, oh, you can do whatever you want to me. You can do whatever you want to me. And then the cops come busting in. And then it seemed like his character was very disappointed that it was broken up. Exactly. I was actually confused if he was like, is he upset because they thought he was going to catch the guy? Or is he upset because he wanted to go further or something along those lines? It seemed very strangely set up. Which really makes no sense at all. Because if you're a guy who's maybe like questioning his sexuality and is like, oh, I want this to go further. I, I, I want to see like how into this I am. Go ahead and tie me up like a pig, naked on this bed, and um, you're not going to do that as you, part of a stakeout. Do you really forget? Yeah, you forget <laughs> that um, all these other cops are listening in. Your, your, your peers. It seemed like and very at the, the first sign of danger, they're going to come rushing in. I mean, yeah. So, so this is this is where to me and what I what I meant by it, it felt like this was seventy percent of a movie. Uh, it, it feels like they're really playing with his sexuality here in terms of, uh, you know, really pushing it into this ambiguous zone. And uh, yeah, it, it, I, I had the same read on it, Marcus, which is I did, I did think he was disappointed 
he yeah. was sad that uh, he was somehow hoping that maybe the guy would start something and then the police would show up. But again, if you think about that from a plan standpoint, I mean, what was he waiting for? Was he waiting to actually get stabbed before he had the cops run in there? It was, yeah. doesn't, I, seem, I, doesn't seem well thought out as a sting operation. Let me say that. What? I think they cut out one of the line after they bust in. He says, um, when he looks at the cops and he's all tied up, he says, what are you guys doing? I had him where I wanted him. Is it, he that? <laughs> Does he actually say that? I forget. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just no. joking. <laughs> no, he he's like literally hogtied. There's nothing he can do. Right. Yeah. It's very, very odd. But then, so uh, the, the next scene is perhaps one of the more, the most interesting scenes in the entire film. So uh, the police show up, uh, they, they basically detain Pacino and the guy who he's with, the, he's with in the hotel room. They take him back to an interrogation room for one of the most fascinating police interrogation sequences ever to be put to film, in my mind. Because there's a, several guys in the room, they're... They're yelling at him. They're trying to get him to confess. Uh, and then their secret... And they, and they are treating him like he's uh, a suspect. So he, both he and the, the other guy. So so as not to blow his cover. Oh, yeah. No, so they're, yeah, they're treating Steve Burns and this other guy the same way. And then they, they separate them. And at that point, uh, they begin working on just the suspect, the true suspect. And as part of that conversation, uh, they're certainly not easy on him for being gay to begin with. So there, yeah, that's there's some comments, pretty negative comments thrown out there. But then, randomly, uh, after they're yelling at him and they can't get a confession out of him, they open a door and there is a six foot five African American man wearing only uh, was it a jock strap or a speedo and a cowboy jock jock strap and a cowboy hat jock strap and a cowboy hat. And when you're when you're watching the movie and that happens, I actually took a picture of it and I sent it out to you guys with a simple tagline that said, what the fuck? Because it's I, li- I literally gasped. I, I like it made no sense. At I, all. I like screamed like, what the I was not expecting that. No. It's, and uh, so it's pretty bizarre. And then. Apparently, and this is one of the things, did some research after the fact, uh, they said that that actually used to happen. So they they used to do it as a part of an interrogation technique occasionally with some suspects. And the reason why they did it that way is because they figured that if the suspect later complained to other authorities or, you know, a grand jury or something, that nobody would ever believe that the police were hiding a large African-American jockstrap uh, toting cowboy hat dude to go beat the crap out of him because that's what this guy does. He enters the room and he begins to just pummel the suspect. So the, police brutality, totally. I, I, I have to say that um, while I I totally get that um, and you know, I, I, I believe that because it, it, it's just so out there, right? No one's ever going to believe you when you describe that. <laughs> but how many times could they actually pull that off before like, you know, like uh, the the defense attorneys start going, um, wait a minute. Why is it that every case we get, they it's describe the same, the same thing? <laughs> supposedly the actor was uh, the real cop. He's a real cop. That. Yeah, he's a real cop. And supposedly he's the one who actually dressed up and did that. Yeah, that was him. He That yeah. was, yeah, he was like a real cop. Oh, I, I knew that. It, I knew they modeled it on a real cop, but I didn't know that that was the yeah. actual guy. Yeah, that yeah. was the actual guy. The actual, oh my gosh! I think his actual get up too. Yeah. 
I think the I don't think they actually beat him up, or at least I'm sure that's their story. And they uh, just did it to scare him of like, what the hell is this guy doing? He's pretty intimidating. Well, and that's character. so. <laughs> and, and so they do. They they take his fingerprints. Uh, they end up ruling him out because his fingerprints don't match the. Uh, I don't, how, how did they have his fingerprints wait, you're, on the? Court? Wait, you're, you're, I think you're skipping over something important here. Okay. Um, be- before they do that, after after the naked cowboy comes in, they they um, they threaten the the suspect with uh, doing the floating ball test. Oh yeah, I, I wrote that down in my notes, and I like, what what is <laughs> that? That's that, that was when sorry sorry I got no, a cat I said, in the background. In fact, in fact that, I'm that was when my notes. they were they were they told the the suspect that the. Um, uh, the real suspect, right, is uh, is shooting blanks, right? He had no sperm at all in his semen. And so they tell the guy this and they're like, and so they, they tell him that they're like, we're going to find out because we're, we're going to do the floating ball test. <laughs> I'm like, the fuck is the floating ball test? Yeah. And uh, then that goes absolutely nowhere. I was going to say, I don't even remember that part. It just skipped by me. Oh, no, I, yeah, I was just going to say, on my notes, I wrote down ball float test dash what the fuck. That's <laughs> so that, that's uh, two WTF moments in that uh, in that room for sure. Um, and the other thing I would say, too, is so they end up ruling the suspect out. They let him go. And uh, so uh, Steve Burns, Al Pacino's character, is, is pretty upset the way the suspect was treated and was beaten. And the explanation that he's given from, I think it's Captain, Captain Edelstein, is that and I wrote this down. Sometimes you only get one chance and it's the job. So it's just a simple explanation. You only have one chance with a suspect. So just bring in a large African-American man in a cowboy had to beat the crap out of him because that's the way police work is done here in New York City. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, these, these cops are just, uh, they're out there when it comes to their policing techniques. I'll, I'll say that. I, I have a quick question. Quick question about like story storyline here yeah um this guy who is the suspect was he the one who was he the waiter who worked in the in the restaurant that had the steak knives or is that the oh. other guy that, that, that was, was this guy that, that was, was that guy. guy yeah, yeah. so did, okay well so when do the two cops go to the steakhouse uh um, that, 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 that was before that was before that's that yeah, yeah they, they, was, they somehow they they keyed in on this character I think they were looking for him or something like that. And because um, they were looking for waiters who worked at that restaurant. So that's okay. So that was like before the sting. Then they set up the sting. Yeah. And okay. 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 Sorry. And the, the other thing I did. But I, that I was a weird, was... that is a weird scene with the cops. No, so <laughs> like what is even so going on? Do you know? Sorry. Sorry. Do you know those two cops? Do you know who like one of those two cops is? Was one of them Ed O'Neill? It was. It was Ed O'Neill's yeah. first acting job. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> it was well, his you know, feature debut. And I was like, who is that guy? He looks so familiar. Well, and I'll tell you something else about that, too. Such is, a weird uh, scene. When they, when they go to the restaurant and they go to a steakhouse, both of them sit on the same side of the table together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, what are you guys doing? I mean, yeah. so I, I guess they're people watching or something. But meanwhile... Of course, they're like two police detectives would be like, well, I want to sit next to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then there's, of course, a lot of uh, close ups on, you know, people cutting into their bloody steaks. <laughs> I don't know what Friedkin's trying to say there. 
so then after that scene where after the uh after that suspect is ruled out randomly out of nowhere uh steve burns receives some information that one of the one of the people one of, one of the uh people who was murdered was a professor and so someone gives him a stack of students that were in this guy's class for one particular year i would say because it looks like it's pages out of a yearbook and steve burns the detective is looking at this finds one guy and circles him <laughs> and because oh, that was the guy who was from the bar so he so he recognized him oh he as recognized being, him. as being one of the guys from the he was actually like the uh the real bad dude from from the bars which is that doesn't make sense. Or maybe he wasn't, but he he definitely, he had come up to him at one point and was like right in his face and like looked straight at him, like, you know, sizing him up, maybe looking for a hanky. I don't know. Uh, but so he definitely recognized him. Okay. And um, that was, uh, the character's name is Stuart, right? And um, he's played by Richard Cox. <laughs> So, so I didn't mean to say it that way. Uh, I wasn't going for anything. Did, did this uh, by the end of this film was over? Were you questioning? Were you feeling ambiguous yourself? I was. I was. It's true. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but no, Richard Cox. The whole the rest of the movie, I'm going like, who is this guy? Who is? I know him, and I'm really good about if I see someone, especially with the voice, because the voice was super familiar. And I'm really good about like getting it and figuring out who it was, like what I've seen them in. And I could not figure it out. And I had to look at IMDb. And even on IMDb, I'm going like, um, no, like he's been in nothing. Like this is his major role is in cruising. And then I saw it, <laughs> Star Trek The Next Generation, Kirill Finn. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's like from one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, The High Ground. And it's the uh, the terrorist leader. And yeah, I was like, "Wow, okay." That, so, that is a that is a deep cut, right there. That, that is a deep, 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 deep cut. Yes. Yeah. So, for any uh, Star Trek TNG fans out fans out there, uh, yes, that was Kirill Finn. All right. So, Steve, getting back to Steve Burns and his uh, ongoing impressive investigation. So he. Saw the guy in the bar, he circles him on uh, the yearbook page, and then immediately somehow knows exactly where the guy lives, and his plan is to go and hang out outside his window. So that's his, that's his surveillance uh, plan. And uh, I, I think it was more of a stalking plan. Yeah, it, it, uh, he comes very much across as a stalker. I mean, it, for all intents yeah. and purposes, they're, it seems like they're indicating here that uh, Steve Burns himself might have uh, some uh, lust and or lust to, to kill somebody, because the way he's staring at the dude through the window. I would be really uncomfortable if somebody was outside my window staring at, at me the way that Steve Burns does. Um, can, can I just point something out too? Like the whole time like where he's like following him and and yes, yeah, stalking or staking him out outside of his uh, window. Uh, we see uh, at one point the, the guy Stuart is like jogging. He jogs back to his um, his apartment. And he's wearing like a like a gray sweatshirt, which makes sense, right? But he's also wearing like jeans and tennis shoes. <laughs> who, who jogs in jeans? I up? mean, I I know this is it's the era before like athleisure. But seriously, <laughs> you got a gray sweatshirt. You couldn't find a pair of gray sweatpants to go along with it. You got to wear your jeans. 
You don't you don't exercise in jeans? I was thinking about after I finished the podcast running out and yeah. Not, not since like the fifth grade. So, <laughs> you don't you don't put on your uh your uh Levi's and go out and hit the half marathon and you get <laughs> chafing gone. I think yeah, in uh, no. fifth grade it was nineteen eighty, so you're lining up perfectly. Yeah, but this guy's like a graduate student. <laughs> All right. So Steve Burns. So he decides to wait until this guy uh, leaves and he breaks into his apartment. Uh, so again, that's breaking and entering by the police department, right? No warrant. Again, just uh, one uh, fantastic police procedure after another in this film. Um, and when he goes into the apartment, he actually ends up seeing, uh, he finds a box of letters, right? Doesn't he? Steve Burns finds the letters, right? Doesn't he? He does. He, he pulls them out of the uh, closet. He uh, um, he opens up the box, and there's all these letters there. And you're going like, "What is this?" I still don't really know what those letters. Were. Yeah, it's a it's a huge box of letters, and they are all addressed, but none of them are stamped, and they're just sitting there in the closet. And they're all dressed to the same person, right? Yeah, they're all dressed to the same person. But but and that person lives in like uh, Nebraska or Iowa, or Kansas or Missouri or someone. Well, that's. You know who that person is, right? On those letters, his father, right? His father, yeah, his father, his yeah. dead, his dead. You find out later that he's been writing. This guy has been writing letters to his dead father. We'll talk about his yeah, dead but father it, in a minute because his father does show up for a second. Yeah, but it's still go ahead. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, so Steve Burns is there. He uh, breaks in. He uh, looks at the letters on his way out. He can't really get the window fan back in the same position, and then leaves so not only was he breaking and entering but he left a pretty bad trail of his uh of his breaking and entering and so the suspect what's the guy's name suspect stewart okay so stewart comes back to his apartment and immediately notices that the fan uh the window fan is askew because of the way steve burns left it and the very first thing he does is he runs to his closet to check the letters <laughs> yeah somebody explained that one to me, right? Because not only does when Steve Burns breaks into the apartment, he goes right to the letters. And when Stuart comes back and sees that the window fans off slightly, he goes to the letters too. That's uh, obviously that makes perfect sense from a, from a plot standpoint. It's yeah, mighty convenient no. to say that. No. Yeah. By the way, uh, Stuart's um, roommate is played by uh, William Russ, who played Roger Lococo on the early eighties wise guy with uh, Ken Wall. <laughs> that's another fantastic deep i'm gonna call you deep cut colin <laughs> come on man it's roger lacoco <laughs> kevin spacey was on that same show he could have been huge <laughs> i had to look up his name though to me he's just always roger lacoco so uh so steve burns he feels he's He's somehow closing in on his man, even though there's no indication whatsoever that this guy could be the killer. There's no information that in any way links him to, uh, to the killer. Well, he, he, I mean, he's only him. linked because he was a student of the psychology professor who was one of the early victims. Yeah. That's then, it. Like, that's the link. The next scene is uh, Stuart on the park bench with his dad, though. Because doesn't he run out, like, after he looks in the, uh, in the box of... He saw that his box of uh, letters were open. Does he run out of the right. and sits on the park bench with his father yeah. showing so, up? Exactly. So Stuart, who is the killer, 
goes and sits on a park bench and randomly has a or has a hallucination that he is talking to his dead father and his dead father is looking at him intently and says you know what you must do <laughs> and that's it then that scene's I, over I, I feel like we, we we switched into a different movie at that point <laughs> yeah exactly no, I, was, I was watching that I'm like what the, what the hell is this <laughs> like who is this guy you know why is there suddenly an imaginary it's kind of like that that quick cut of the uh, predator vision in central park right this happens and then it's gone and what 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 was that don't understand but um but then at that point steve burns goes back to his apartment and he goes upstairs to find or to uh to see the the person that he ran into when he first moved into the building and there he instead encounters his roommate uh you assume his boyfriend uh, played by a young James Remar, who was pretty cool to see, actually, because... Uh, Looking every, good, young James Remar. Every time I see James Remar, I immediately think of Ajax from The Warriors. That's my immediate association with James Remar. But long I time, always think I always think of, what's his name from, 48 Hours? Oh, Gantz? Yeah, Gantz. Gantz. Gant, 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 Gant? That was Gantz. Gant or Gantz? That was Gantz. I'll have to look it up. But yeah, James Remar comes on strong there, uh, and there is a very interesting... Uh, interaction between Al Pacino because when uh, when Steve Burns sees James Remar, he gets really really angry, and so I assume what they're going for here is it's jealousy, and I think they're setting it up that Steve Burns eventually becomes a killer himself at the end of the movie. That's my read on it because, and what I would say is this is one place where Steve Burns or Pacino goes full Pacino for a second there, because he kicks in the door and he's yelling, and James Remar grabs a knife to actually uh, prevent yes. you know, from coming any further. And so it's this moment, it's a pretty intense moment. And Pacino is you know, raising his voice and, uh, and then he ends up leaving. But there's never any explanation as to why uh, Steve Burns seeing this guy would throw him into a rage. And the only explanation really in my mind is the fact that he's jealous and that he either had been sleeping with his upstairs neighbor or he had a, he had a crush on him. And so when he sees James Remar, he feels threatened by it. That was my I, I mean, that's the only thing I can think of, right? But I didn't see that at all. He seemed like pretty platonic with the uh, the next door neighbor. Um, yeah. I, I can't see them having slept together. The only thing was, you know, the neighbor was always complaining about his, his boyfriend, but not in a bad way. It's not like the guy beat him, right? Like he never said anything about that. He complained like he was away too much or something like that. It wasn't like a... Right, Yeah. It, it was just odd. It was, it was very, very odd. odd. Yeah. It was a very odd scene. It's a, uh, the theme of the movie is a very odd scene. <laughs> I, I think, I think this is a man going through a crisis. Yeah. Uh, you think Steve Burns is going through a crisis? I think yeah. so. Yes. I would say it's a crisis of his own sexuality. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Yes. So, okay. Then, so Steve Burns decides he's going to make the move. He's going to uh, try and lure Stuart into a location where he can then uh, somehow, I, I assume, catch him in the act of trying to murder himself. <laughs> right? Like that's, know, right? As far as I know, he, his plan is with no backup to take a killer out to a park in the middle of nowhere. And, or no, actually he, I'm sorry, he follows Stuart as Stuart himself is going out, presumably to do some cruising in the park. And Steve Burns comes along and finds him sitting on a park bench, decides to sit down next to him to try to initiate uh, you know, a connection. And one thing that's interesting about that is it's another, another one of those shots where uh, Stuart flicks a cigarette onto the ground and you see this and, and Friedkin chooses to 
show the cigarette hitting the ground and rolling to a stop. And there's another lit cigarette that's on the ground. And, and it lingers there for three to four seconds and then it cuts away. Again, I don't know why it was important to let the, see the cigarette hitting the ground, just a bit of an odd choice. I, I would like to say that I, I think at this point, you know, it's not about like trying to catch the kill. I mean, he's trying to catch him, but it's like um, they're just playing this game of cat and mouse because, you know, Stuart obviously like saw him, uh, saw Pacino uh, Burns across the street, you know, spying on him, got really upset put on his uh, leathers, went outside, knew he was following him. I mean, it was all very obvious. Right. Right. And now it's like, well, what's going to happen here? You know, are we going to, you going to arrest me? Uh, you know, are you going to try to kill me? Are we going to fuck? I don't know what's going on. Right. Yeah. No. And, and I'm not sure that, I mean, it's all very, that's one of the things I think as the scene progresses, you're not quite sure how far uh, Steve Burns is going to go. Uh, and so, because my question, and so anyway, so he, uh, he brings Stuart back to a location under the bridge where they have a little privacy. They have a brief conversation as to who's going to do what, uh, they start to get into it. And then suddenly Stuart pulls a knife and Steve Burns has his own knife and stabs him. And that's it. That's he's, 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 he's got his man. He, Hips or lips? Hips or lips? Yeah, yeah. Hips or lips is the option. Um, which, would... which, by the way, I, I'm thinking this whole time. You know, when the knife comes out, uh, it's not like he he. I don't think he he grabbed his knife and pulled it on him. I I think he was taking his boot off and just fell out, and then Burns like grabbed it and stabbed him like he thought he was being attacked. Yeah, you could argue that uh, that Steve Burns is the one who makes the the aggressive move here and stab and stabs him actually, and that the other guy was acting in self defense. But yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm not even sure that the other guy actually murdered anyone. Yeah, it was unknown if he. Well, but don't they end up? They end up. Uh, so then, okay, then it cuts to a scene of Stewart in the hospital, and uh, I had to I had to go back and get this dialogue as well because this is a pretty pretty good sweetheart deal in my mind when it comes to uh, law enforcement. So here's the, uh, here's the offer that he gives him. So as Stuart is laying in the hospital bed, uh, Captain Edelstein comes to visit him and he says, if you confess to, and he names a couple of the specific names of the people who've been killed, but then he says, if you confess to four to five murders, we'll reduce your sentence. You'll do eight years, no more. Eight years for four to five murders. That sounds like a real sweet deal to me. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, so, uh, you know, I mean, I've seen a fair share of Law & Order. Um, I don't believe that in most cases, four to five murders uh, on that show gets you eight years or less. Maybe uh, you're out in five for good behavior. Um, well, I think the thing is that they were just, you know, these these gay, you know, leather men. So it didn't really matter. They yeah, I mean, that's them. that's what that's what they're going for. But uh, I understand that they're, you know, trying to, or Freakin's making the point that the police were not as invested in solving crimes in the gay community, uh, which I, I believe is a real thing based on some of the after yeah. after the fact reading I did on this. At the same time, I still don't think in a situation where you have the guy that you think has murdered four to five people, you're going to cut him a break to eight years. So I just yeah. thought that was kind of odd. Uh, and then 
at that point, the uh, the film wraps, uh, and uh, Steve Burns takes a, a t- takes a moment to thank Captain Edelstein for all the great support he received throughout the course of the investigation, <laughs> which is absolute horseshit. Because I don't know what he did to support him. Because as far as I know, he gave him very limited direction, um, sent him out, uh, or actually, you know, basically to who knows what in the SNM community in terms of what he was expecting Steve Burns to do. Again, no direction. Uh, when Steve Burns tries to ask a question in the pool hall, he shuts him down and says, I asked the questions here. Uh, and then that's it. And then, he, but then I will say that Captain Edelstein at the end offers him his detective shield. Oh, and then after that, uh, Captain Edelstein is called to the scene of another murder. And this is while they have Stuart in custody. And it is uh, Steve Burns upstairs neighbor who is found lying dead on the floor stabbed a whole bunch of times, apparently blood everywhere. You assume it's a crime of passion. And so, uh, and I think what you see in that moment is Captain Edelstein maybe questioning whether or not it was uh, this guy's roommate or potentially Steve Burns himself. At least that was my read on it. Well, they, I, Which he, I, he asked him who the uh, next door neighbor, it was a next door, not upstairs. And so then uh, randomly he asked one of the other police officers who lives next door. And they knew like, it was the uh, undercover name of Steve Burns. Yeah, and then uh, and then they he like has a question on his face, and then they cut to Al Pacino shaving in the mirror. Jerry. Well, yeah. So so don't um, well. So here's my take on it: is uh, oh yeah. So okay. So then Steve Burns, the last scene of the film, uh, he goes home. He and he's back in the apartment with Karen Allen. He asks her if he can come home. She says. Yes, because, I mean, I'm sure he's just been a fantastic boyfriend all these years. Um, and then the last thing you see is uh, of Steve Burns is in the mirror shaving, and he has a little bit of a strange look on his face while Karen Allen decides to put on some of his S&M gear. So she puts on the hat, I think the hat and a jacket. Right. By the way, the uh, case is now over, and yet he's he seems to have uh, taken home some of his uh, his wardrobe with him. Yeah, so he has brought the wardrobe home, uh, and also as he's shaving in the mirror, he's looking at himself with a certain, uh, almost a vacant look in his eye, and you're not sure, you know, where his head is at. And, uh, Was it Buffalo Bill? I'd fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, so, so what I would say is I my read on, uh, you know, you can look at what happened with the the neighbor getting murdered as either uh, Friedkin just wanted to make sure that there was he was projecting the concept of having multiple killers on the loose at the same time, or you can read it that Steve Burns lost his shit and killed his his former next door neighbor uh, because maybe it was either you know his repressed homosexuality you know coming to the forefront and that got him all screwed up uh, or. Um, you know, who knows? I mean, that, that's it's it's perfectly left or it's left uh, open and ambiguous and uh, then, you know, fade to black. And that's the end of the movie. I, I got to say, I I don't think it was Steve Burns who who killed the neighbor. But now that you're saying that, I could see where maybe, um, you know, he went back to the apartment and then the neighbor comes over to him, who's been a friend and then just goes apeshit on him for almost attacking his boyfriend, right? And then Steve Burns gets all upset 
and they get into a fight and he like ends up stabbing him to death. But he got stabbed like say, probably 12, 15 times, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. And it's obviously not like the the quote unquote gay serial killer because that's not his MO. Um, I think it's more likely that it was James Remar, the, the boyfriend, because it looked like a crime of passion. But they seem to have a pretty good relationship. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. But I think that really it's it's like, well, these things happen. And, you know, now their cops are just going to chalk it up to, oh, it's the serial killer. No, I took it like it led to believe it was uh, it was Steve Burns uh, who killed him. And I kind of like the the father to the son. So there's like this serial killer nature is falling down. So uh, Stuart's dad was a serial killer who did the earlier ones. And Stuart was doing the next ones. And now wait, wait, what? <laughs> this is my take. The uh, like it's just like a following of. Uh, wait, so you think that Stuart's father killed some of the first, like maybe the dismembered victims? Ones. Yeah. But his, his father is dead. Like maybe he got killed. Like we don't know why he's dead. Like why is he coming in? Why is he haunting him? Why is he? Father but his father lives in St. Louis. He's one that you need to do it. It's very confusing. I'm not saying it's a perfect uh, theory. I wouldn't call it confusing. <laughs> <laughs> call, call horseshit. I, I think they're trying to have him come off as like uh, like Stuart was like. Uh, bipolar or schizophrenic and that's why he's like writing all these letters to his dead father and so because he's schizophrenic obviously he's mentally unstable unstable so you know he he's he would kill people which i find to be like ridiculous i took it um, as his father like knew the disease also and like his father had the same uh he's like because really what do you say to him like what, what was his father telling him? He was saying, like, oh, you know what you need to do. It's time. You know what you have like to that. do. Yeah. Oh, like, oh, it, it's time? It's something like that. You know what you have to do. Like, you know what you have. Hmm. So you know like, what you have to do. I think he was, like, relating hmm. with his father. Could relate to the... Uh, he, the he, could be the, he could be the fucking watcher from... Uh, <laughs> in, in New Jersey. The guy, the, the, guy, the guy who watches the house. You know what I'm talking about? No. <laughs> Never mind. It's for another but it's for another podcast. It's just a okay, obscure well. theory. So whatever it is, there's just a whole lot of questions. Well, and in and so some after the fact reading on this, maybe we can uh jump to that just in terms of any additional research that we did. Um so I one of the things that uh that I found was several interviews with Friedkins where where he said he purposely left the film uh and the killer ambiguous on purpose. And so because it was going, he was going for the idea that there were multiple killers out there. Uh, and also he specifically said that he did not want to wrap the movie up uh, with a, in, you know, with, with a tight bow specifically for that reason. So he wanted to leave it open. He wanted to put forth the idea there were multiple killers. A um, couple other things really quick that I found interesting. So there's a, an article on IndieWire that breaks down uh, the original, uh, the original director they were pursuing for this film. Uh, so the producer, Philip D'Antoni, uh, was talking to a young filmmaker by the name of Steven Spielberg. <laughs> so, oh, my God. Who, uh, so Spielberg was going to be the one who was originally uh, interested, or he was interested in directing this, to the point where he went out to New York and he met with a detective named Randy Jurgensen. And Randy Jurgensen is the actual detective that went undercover uh, to try and find this killer. 
uh, when they were really when they were actually pursuing the real case. Um, by the way, Randy Jurgensen is also a technical advisor on the French Connection, so uh, he's been he's been around for a while, um, or at least had the relationship with Friedkin for quite a while. Uh, but and apparently he uh, he went so far as to take Spielberg to the locations of the crimes and do some investigation. And he also uh, did some experimentation. Well, that's the wrong word. <laughs> he uh, showed Spielberg uh, a few things in relation to uh, how to how the police applied dominance. Like he threw him against the wall and frisked him and did some stuff like that. Um, but what I thought- At was, which point Spielberg said like, I'm out. Yeah, like, so, so Spielberg uh, <laughs> actually truthfully with the way that it's described that I read about it was that uh, they couldn't they couldn't come to terms on the the script <laughs> the final version of the script and that's why spielberg left but what i would say is really interesting and and you know if this is true is um so uh, richard zanuck who was the producer on sugarland express actually called philip d'antoni to say hey what do you think about this spielberg guy and d'antoni gave him a you know positive review and then they and then zanuck said okay great and they went ahead and they made sugarland express so to me, it's sort of interesting that, you know, could could you say that cruising actually had some effect on Spielberg's career or the attempt to make cruising actually sent him on that direction? I, I, thought that was, made, I thought that was pretty interesting. I don't know. He'd already done Jaws in uh, Close Encounters, right? No, no. Well, yeah. This is when they were this developing. Been like, yeah. This was 75 when they were developing the script, actually. I think Cruising would have been a very different film with Spielberg at, at the helm. I know, because imagine the John Williams score versus The Germs, which is the, <laughs> the, punk, the punk band that created several songs for the uh, soundtrack. That would be interesting. Um, and then I'll, I'll just, one other thing that I thought was interesting. So there's an interview that Tom Toro did on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, where uh, one, one of the things that Friedkin says about what he was going for in terms of the character uh, that Al Pacino was playing was, and the quote is, the very best cops are the ones who think like criminals anyway, uh, who could have gone either way. And so I think about that. And then I think about Pacino and heat and that I thought was an interesting tie in there because, interesting. Uh, because I, you know, Pacino is effectively the mirror image of De Niro in heat. And so, uh, and he definitely does, you know, if you think about the fact that maybe uh, Steve Burns in this movie was a killer, he's definitely riding the, the edge between, you know, or, or the morality of being a cop versus being a criminal for sure. And even some of the actions he takes throughout the movie, for sure, like breaking and entering, he's definitely not, uh, you know, he's not hung up on his uh, ethical approach to police work. Well, it makes me think of William Peterson in To Live and Die in L.A. because he was a completely out of control Secret Service agent. I mean, this guy was like breaking, literally breaking all the rules, not in like the good way. Right. Yeah, I need to watch. I need to watch that movie again. Actually, the one the one thing I remember about To Live and Die in L.A. is the kick is the kick ass reverse freeway car chase. That's the one thing that sticks out in my head. That and uh, yeah. Will and Defoe, uh, you know, uh, working on the um, like lighting the paintings on fire. Those are the things that I remember about that movie. I think uh, I was a little underwhelmed. Go ahead. All right. Well, I think that might be bringing us towards the end here. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, have a, I have a few notes. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean to step on your a, notes. Just a few notes. I, 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 can we talk about casting for a minute? Yeah, let's talk about casting. Um, so uh, it, it's pretty clear that uh, Pacino was not the first choice for this role. Um, the first choice was uh, Richard Gere. Yeah. And um, I think... 
I don't know if there was a, a particular reason why. I, I think the, the studio came to him and said that, um, well, Pacino was interested and he was like, you know, really at the peak of his career after doing like, you know, um, the Godfather movies and all that. And so they basically said like, you know, we're, Pacino is going to do this, right? And um, and it's pretty clear that uh, Friedkin was not happy and, and really actually wanted the, his first choice, which was uh, Richard Gere. And I, I want to know what you guys think about Richard Gere in the role of Steve Burns, because I think it would have been a much better movie. I, I, I want to see that movie. As I said, I think he definitely would have done a better job with it. It wouldn't have been as... Al Pacino just seemed more confused and not as engaged in the role. So it might have been if Richard Gere could have done a uh, a stronger performance, it might have actually confused things even more, depending on Freakin was going for. If that makes any sense, like if he wanted yeah, one the of the ambiguity. Things, one, one of the things that Freakin said on the commentary was that uh, Pacino was very uncomfortable with what he saw in the bars. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> and, and actually, and you can see that in the character. And so, and, and he actually comments the Friedkin comments that he thought that the fear that you see in Pacino's eyes when the character is first being exposed to the environment is real. Um, yeah. To answer the Richard Gere question, I think it'd be a much better fit because Gear definitely can play the sexual ambiguity and um, kind of the, almost a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah. I, I'll just say, you know, the ambiguity, um, you know, to the T, right? He he could crush that, and also, gear younger too. He was he, he was younger, right? He's yeah. younger, um, and he also looks, um, you know, to me. I think you could dress him the part a little bit better than uh, I don't know. I'm not sure that Pacino ever looks totally right to me in this movie, and maybe it's well, just maybe maybe it's just the perm. I don't know, but something about it just doesn't look like Al Pacino to me. Well, well Steve, so like Steve Burns is like this. Steve Burns is like this young cop, right? And Pacino was 39 when they made this movie, so yeah. it's. Yeah, doesn't he doesn't really quite fit? And yeah, yeah, he's like seems fearful during during most of the movie, right? Um, the, what's really awkward is in one of the club scenes where he goes out on the dance floor and he like takes I think which I think is like amyl nitrate and is doing his he's dancing. Yeah, that is quite a dance, I have to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a really awkward dance. Um, it's if you if if anyone out there has has the opportunity to to, to check it out, I, I definitely recommend it. It's pretty funny. Um, yeah, he's doing the uh, kind of the white man's overbite with the dance move, right? But yeah. but like but if you did that while you're on drugs, right? Yeah, no, no, it's it's definitely uh, it's it's pretty spectacular for sure. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't the, have the, moves. The, the other thing I want to say, uh, you know, like, so director sort of throws you under the bus and said, hey, I should have gone with my first choice, Richard Gere. Um, I think it was seems pretty obvious from the stuff I've read from Friedkin after is that he didn't really respect Pacino that much. No. Um, he, um, what did he say? Um, he said, uh, for a long time, Pacino uh, wouldn't talk about the film and, and Friedkin said at the time that's a good thing because he's not very eloquent yeah <laughs> he also said like like he he didn't like his his acting style which because i think he would like show up to unprepared, the set right? unprepared yeah hadn't read his lines like didn't know you know which seems all very pacino right but yeah 
so they obviously didn't mesh very well. So yeah, to think with Richard Gere in the role, it's going to have been a, a much better movie. It might have landed a little bit better. But I think, uh, I don't know, it depends on what they're going for. I think Pacino's okay. confusion and kind of fear of it all and, uh, you know, kind of being overwhelmed does kind of fit into the character, but. Oh, kind yeah. Of well, so, so Friedkin says uh, about Pacino, I've never worked with an actor who was less prepared. Uh, and he adds that Pacino seemed um, to be following in the footsteps of Marlon Brando and not memorizing his lines and choosing instead to be, quote, spontaneous. <laughs> yeah, Steve Burns did not come across as having a whole lot of spontaneity in this film. No. no. All right, Marcus, any additional notes from you or anything else you want to cover? I don't. The film made money. They should have made a sequel. Its budget was only $11 million. Box office is 20 When's Cruising 2 coming? <laughs> I'm thinking never. All right, so uh, last question then. Would you recommend this movie? Would you recommend people watch it? Uh, depends on who that person is. Um, uh, well, if you yeah. were going to recommend it, why would you say someone should see this? Because it's enthralling. <laughs> it's like, I didn't know what to make of this movie. And like, I think I had a similar reaction to Marcus after the first 10 minutes. I was like, what am I watching? <laughs> um, and I had this sort of, uh, feeling it was like the same feeling I had when I watched Eraserhead for the first time, and I was like, "This is crazy." I'm not sure that I can continue watching this, and yet I was sort of mesmerized, and I somehow made it all the way through. Um, certainly, I think that the turning point, you know, being the big black cop in the <laughs> cowboy hat and, and jockstrap, really just sort of cinched it. Like I, I got to continue watching this movie. Um, so yeah, it depends on the type of person. I have to know like what kind of movies they like, if they're adventurous at all. And if they are, I'd say like, you got to check that out. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to be recommending it to my mom anytime soon. Um, Marcus, I, I would say no, I would not recommend it. There's far too many better movies out there and it's not even a bad movie in the campy way. Like it could be like a good, bad movie. I would say this one tends to be more just in the, bad bad movie and uh it's interesting to see it's interesting to have watched but i don't there's so many other movies you can spend your time and enjoy i guess i'm not going to be sending you the blu-ray for your birthday no thank you <laughs> yeah this one was a tough one uh for me in terms of yeah you know what i want what i recommend somebody watch this movie and i think like colin i'm interested in the their reaction you know or, or interested in the idea of them experiencing the same reaction I had when they opened the door and there's the dude with the cowboy hat. But beyond that, for me, the, I mean, the reason why I would say no, and I, I guess I would probably be a no overall is just the, the, the plot, right? It's um, it feels very fluid. You know, the fact that you have multiple killers uh, it's all unresolved. It's just kind of, I don't know. It's, it's there. And, and I actually don't think, I personally don't think that's a particularly uh, compelling performance from Pacino. It, it, he seems very flat and reserved through most of it. So with the exception of the dance scene where he's really going after it, um, or the one scene where he, you know, attacks or tries to attack James Remar. Other than that, to me, he has kind of low energy throughout the movie. So I don't know. I don't think it's a great performance for Pacino. Uh, I guess it's interesting if you're a William Friedkin completist. Um, and, you know, it does have enough 
sort of, uh, I guess, titillation or shock value for a few of the, and, and I don't even mean that in terms of the SM club stuff. I mean that in terms of the cowboy hat and the, the dude randomly uh, sitting down to talk to his dead father for no reason for two minutes. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. So that, that part makes it interesting. Uh, I don't know that it makes it compelling, is what I would say. Well, well, I, I find it very ironic that the one guy who's sit, been sitting here bagging on William Friedkin is the only one who would recommend it to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's also, I think, the time that you spent in the clubs yourself, you probably have a different perspective than we do. I just spliced all those scenes together and put a highlight reel that I watch over and over again. <laughs> it's it's such an interesting movie because it could, it could have been like a exploration of the clubs or like it could have been but it, it ends up being so but it was it, it, I, mean, so... I mean there is that that's why i say like those scenes were probably the best scenes in the movie yeah and they're certainly they're the most shocking but i i found them also be to be the most interesting yeah because he's taking you into and challenging a world. yeah he's taking you into a world yeah. that you don't experience right so that's the yeah but it's so shallow at the like i don't know i, don't I mean know haven't you the... ever wanted haven't you ever wanted to go into the Ramrod Club? <laughs> Didn't we dance at the mine shaft? In a, like we, did. We, 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 we did. We did. Actually, we've we've been to the mine shaft, a different mine shaft. That was a bar in Grass. But that was that was M M I N E shaft, not M E I N shaft. <laughs> All right, and I think with that, maybe we can close out our very first 1980 homework assignment: cruising. Uh, and, uh, I think we have a, a two to one, no, as our, should be, should you recommendation. So, uh, it's a, a little bit of a, we're going to say it's a don't run out and watch cruising. However, if you at least want to see this, the interrogation scene, we recommend you track that down on, uh, maybe the, I think the two scenes we're recommending are the interrogation scene and Al Pacino on the dance floor. Both those are worth seeing. Might not be worth sitting through the whole movie to get those. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, I think it. It's official that the podcast is actually longer than the movie itself. Pretty much. <laughs>